Welcome to episode 12 of Single Stock Spaces. And today we are very honored to have Josh Young, uh, who, you know, most folks in my feed and who have been joining these spaces will be very familiar with Josh uh, because Josh so generously shares his views and insights on the energy markets. So really excited to have you. And, you know, I've, I've been wanting to, to kind of drill down on a single name with you for a long time because I really respect your work. I made a comment the other day, you know, there's a lot of folks who are good, you know, with the energy macro, but you have this unique ability to take the energy macro and just nail it on the micro, which I absolutely love. So, you know, it's, it's one thing to get the sector call right. Uh, but to be able to express it, uh, particularly in the way that you've expressed it in the last couple of years and then shared your insights along the way, I think has been particularly brilliant. Um, so thanks for that. Josh, the way I'd like to start the call to get everybody on, on, you know, on, a, on the kind of the quick page of where we're going is to give really the one minute elevator pitch on the name. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll dive deep into the details after you give that pitch. Uh, but let's just start with, you know, what is journey, why are you interested in it? Uh, and then we'll go from there. Sure. So, um, journey is a company that I followed since their IPO in 2014. Um, I followed their CEO since I started investing in oil and gas professionally in 2007. And, um, what caught my attention initially with Journey was just purely volumetric. It was very, very cheap on a flowing barrel basis, and this was back in 2015. Um, I got to know their CEO, thought it was interesting, ended up buying some stock as it got completely blasted in the late 2015, early 2016 correction, um, which wasn't quite as bad as the COVID downturn, but kind of similar. Um, and progressively got to know the company and the assets better have intermittently had it as a larger or smaller position um, since essentially, I think, late 2015, early 2016. Um, and this is something where um, the dynamics after um, after they refinanced their debt and bought back their debt at 50 cents on the dollar changed a lot. So I guess now I'm over a minute. Sorry, I'll, I'll try to keep this really short. So the dynamics changed a lot. People weren't paying attention. They had eliminated a huge amount of debt. Their cash flow was ramping. The assets were outperforming like I kind of always knew they would. Um, they had finally, I had bugged them to do a power gen project. They had looked at it on their own as well. They finally did it, got it set up, got it turned on, um, and uh, became to some extent a vertically integrated independent power producer in Alberta, a province that's massively undersupplied for electricity. And so you had this thing at a huge discount to competitors and to its likely liquidation value. Um, and, you know, a discount on uh, reserve value and on cash flow and a number of other metrics with many different dynamics and kind of hidden value kind of levers. And it had kind of been left for dead. The research analysts were all kind of ignoring it or dropping coverage. And so, um, you know, just a great setup. And then what's been happening is when something does well, it starts to re-rate and people get turned off by stocks that have gone up. And I think it's important in both directions and maybe in every direction, if you have a medium to long-term perspective to ignore the stock chart and just focus on the fundamentals and on kind of the trajectory of the fundamentals. And then I guess actually just very important, um, I own the stock and none of this is a recommendation. Um, you know, people should do their own due diligence. This is a cool opportunity to get to share a specific idea uh, that I have. But, you know, it's something I own just because I own it doesn't mean that you should and uh, always do your own due diligence. That's great, Josh. And by the way, one minute was very soft guided. Uh, so that's perfect. Uh, it's funny. One of the first things that I read after you said you would join was was their presentation from September where they were guiding to $38 million of, of, of free funds flow and their market cap was $55 million at the time. So that's that's how I decided to not look at the stock chart was by just, you know, when that was my first piece of information, I said, oh, it's a, you know, I'm not really going to stress that the stock has gone up so much. Um, could you orient everybody, though, towards the valuation? I mean, there might be some folks here who haven't looked at the Canadian names as much, but just get everybody on the same page. You were mentioning the cash flow valuation, and then just, I'm not sure what the Canadian proxy for, let's say, PV10 is, that sort of thing. But maybe just get everybody Everybody on the same page in terms of where this company is currently valued, maybe on 22, let's say. Sure. Um, and, and these numbers are somewhat dynamic as the commodity price has shifted a lot. And unlike 
many, if not, I think most of Journey's peers on both sides of the border, uh, they're fully unhedged. And so um, that is exciting because it makes the cash flow much more dynamic, but it's also challenging because it makes cash flow forecasts definitely wrong. You just don't know which direction. Um, so as of right now, their estimates are probably low by almost 100%. So they should generate if kind of current strip pricing, you know, oil right now as we're talking, WTI is close to $88 a barrel US, which works out to be well over $100 a barrel Canadian. I think it's like 105 or something, depending on the um, depending on the grade and, and where you're selling it. So, um, you know, they're, they're on track to generate well over 70 million of uh, net operating cash flow. Um, they're planning to spend in the 30 to $35 million range this year in capital expenditures, both on expanding their power generation, as well as on uh, drilling the first new wells that they will have drilled in, I think, three years, two and a half years. Um, so their, that forecast and their numbers are, are not giving them almost any credit for incremental production. Um, so that 22 number actually could look way better in 23, even if you have commodities falling like the strip shows. So you're at kind of a little over two times EBITDA um, on the market cap, a little over three times EBITDA on the enterprise value. Um, with a huge amount of free cash flow, so much more than peers, because the decline rate's very low. The corporate decline rate per their guidance is about 14%. Um, I, I'd say probably the, the base decline is actually probably even lower than that. Um, and, and they just they have a tendency to sandbag um, everything. And you know that's worked out well for them over a downturn, um, but is also an opportunity, I think, to own the stock and kind of like be able to have a variant view versus management, where if you just look at their guidance historically and then look at where they've delivered, um, you can kind of just sensitize everything up 10 or 15%. And, and that's probably a more realistic uh, expectation. So so cheap on, on cash flow, very cheap on free cash flow, because so much of their cash flow is not necessary in order to um, keep production flat. And even on their spend, we figure maybe it costs about $10 million plus or minus a little bit for them to keep their production flat and to kind of maintain the facilities they control. And so the rest of that should really be, um, the rest of that should really be either growth CapEx or debt pay down. And over the course of 2022, they should pay down more than half of their remaining debt. Um, which is, I think, a nice return driver and a, a mechanism they've used so far to get their shares revalued. And it's interesting because as you go from way over levered to kind of over levered to kind of under levered to no debt, um, especially as a, as a cyclical, your valuation can improve dramatically. And so there are various peer companies of a similar size that um, trade at 50 to 100% higher valuation than Journey, even after this recent move, um, it looks like partly because they've done a better job of communicating how much debt pay down they will have accomplished and maybe are a quarter or two ahead. Um, so on cash flow, very cheap. On reserves, it's a little complicated and I think I'd rather not give kind of uh, a specific expectation on reserve value other than that just generally if you generate a lot of free cash flow and have a very low corporate decline rate your reserve value is quite large so i guess uh, more kind of directionally co correct than precisely wrong sort of approach to that um, and based on the historical performance of these assets as well as the huge oil in place i think they have something like 500 million barrels of oil in place original um, with a pretty low recovery so far. Um, I think there, there's quite a bit of, of room to get production just from PDP, as well as a huge amount of room to increase that recovery. So so less of a, hey, it, the, it's at PDP, PV20, which I don't know, maybe is kind of directionally-ish correct, and more, hey, this thing has a huge amount of cash flow potential over time, which is really what reserve value is trying to assess. Um, and then in terms of, uh, uh, differentiators. So they also have almost $700 million of um, net operating losses and other sort of tax offsets, 
which matter a little in downturns because they don't really help you very much. And so it's something that people have kind of ignored for a while and matter a lot in commodity up cycles. And so many of their peers are running out of their net operating losses either in 2022 or 2023. Journey should have <laughs> net operating losses, I guess, depending on how much free cash flow they actually generate and how much they reinvest. But uh, you know, they probably have a good 10 years of runway on their net operating losses. This matters both because they will have a huge margin advantage versus their peers on a kind of net kind of profit basis because they won't be paying tax for a while, as well as um, at least on, on their uh, profits, um, as well as, you know, there are various estimates in terms of what those are worth anywhere from two cents on the dollar in a transaction at the bottom of the downturn to potentially 20 cents or more plus to an acquirer that's already taxable at a pretty high tax rate. So they have that. They have a bunch of infrastructure that they don't really talk about that I don't really want to focus on too much other than just pointing out that they own it. Um, and then um, they have some power generation, which uh, depending on how it's structured and who owns it and whatever can be worth anywhere from, let's say, six to 12 times cash flow. And with kind of what they've done and what their ramp is, I'd argue at least their current power gen should be valued maybe closer to 10 to 12 times cash flow just because there's so much room to ramp up on existing sites as well as on sites where they're producing and where there should be a path to uh, power development. It's not easy. It's a very difficult area and it's very unfortunate. Uh, Canada is a tough place to do business and uh, oil and gas has some like well laid out regulations and controls that allow companies to do stuff and power is a uh, kind of an oligopoly controlled by a couple of like very challenging um, like pseudo monopoly uh, companies. And so that's really tough because it's slowing their, their growth, but it's also amazing for pricing on that business because it's so hard to get projects done um, that are economic and in the right spot that anything that you get built um, ends up being worth quite a bit of money. And the spark spread, I think is what it's called where you uh, from, the gas to the power uh, price or power value uh, is quite wide and it just keeps widening. So, so that, that asset is, I think, quite valuable and their ability as a team to expand it and get additional assets um, built out um, seems actually differentiated and potentially worth quite a bit of money. So I guess kind of across... So that is built out. That, that's, uh, the, the drama was in the past and now it's the cash flow generation. Uh, uh, no, no. That so they have one, they have one built out um, that's like four and a half megawatts. So it's like kind of small. I mean, it's still worth like, I don't know, 30 million bucks or something like that. It cost them like 12 all in. Um, but the, um, and, and that number is rising again, just cause the spark spread just keeps widening. I mean, it's like this, like very bad concoction of like rising CO2 taxes, uh, which are forcing out, uh, coal power generation along with, increasing solar and wind in a place where often solar panels are covered with snow or where it's cloudy. Um, so it's like a <laughs> not, it's like some of the stuff you're seeing in Europe without like the Russia supply thing um, being a factor. So, so it's really a, a very good place to be a power generator. So the existing thing is worth a lot because it was really hard to do. And now expansions and additional plants will be hard, but at least they like have a team that's done it and having done it once, they have a much higher chance of success in terms of expanding and doing it again, if that makes sense. So, so the thing itself is worth a lot. And then the team and the, the runway to do a lot more, I think, is worth even more. Okay, that makes sense. So, Josh, I want to make sure I understand the decline, weight, the decline rate properly. So 14% corporate decline rate, something like 10 million-ish of maintenance uh, cash flow keeps you there. But now we're going to spend you know, 30, 35 this year and what does that do? Does that take corporate decline rate from 14 to 7? Could you just give us the ballpark of, of what they're trying to do with kind of the step up in, in, in drilling? No. So, so, so that I don't think they're going to lower, if anything, their corporate decline rate should rise. The corporate decline rate is just an estimate of the existing production, how much it would fall if you spent no money. And so many shale producers have corporate decline rates of 30% or 40%. It's actually one of the reasons why it's not really a thing that people talk about so much in the U.S. is because the decline rates are so high. Um, so 
in Canada, where there's been less capitalization of these businesses for longer, mostly, um, the decline rates of the fields that the public companies own in some cases are quite low, or like with oil sands, it can be even lower sometimes, although SAG-D and stuff, often this is kind of a uh, more indicative sort of uh, decline rate. So what they're doing with their money is they're replacing production that's going to decline. So they need to replace, let's say, you know, a thousand barrels a day, plus or minus a little bit. Um, and then the rest of their CapEx is going to go towards expanding their power gen and then drilling additional wells that could show substantial uh, production growth. So um, I think the right way to think about it is a business that run rate, I mean, it probably should exceed 70 of cash flow, but you know, let's just use that. That was like a closer to $80 uh, WTI number um, with the then uh, that declining over the next 12 months. Um, not a 88 or whatever, um, but you basically have 10 to keep production flat and then 60 to pay down debt, grow production and grow the power gen. Got it. And so what was, what was production the last couple of years? Was it also flattish the last couple of years? Yeah. So, so over the last two years, production fell about an aggregate worked out to be just under 25%. So it worked out to be less than 12%, well, like 12, let's say 12.5% not compounded. And then they bought an asset um, that got their production up to a little over 8,000 barrels a day. So they were at, let's say 10,000 barrels a day at the start of 2020, probably like 9,800 or somewhere around that. And right now they're at about 8,200 and that's after buying about 600 barrels a day of production. Okay, got it. Um, one thing, could you just orient listeners that, that know U.S. assets but not Canadian of just some of the key, you know, two or three of the key considerations? Um, obviously, you know, this, this decline rate is, is one of them. Um, but but just let's just get that out there early on in the conversation. Yeah. So um, Canada has been infrastructure challenged for a while. Um, for oil, for gas, for various other things. I mean, you have 50,000 truckers that are driving to the prime minister's office right now <laughs> who just called in sick. So, you know, uh, interesting place. There's there's quite a bit more, I think, geopolitical risk maybe on both sides of the border these days than people would like to admit. But on the Canada side, it's interesting. Um, and we put out a white paper on this last year, just kind of giving the all clear on, on things resolving. Um, but eventually, after many years of very little progress on uh, pipeline construction and on debottlenecking, there have been a number of different projects on the oil and natural gas side that are finally allowing enough takeaway that Canadian oil and gas production is getting a pretty good price. And so what that means is that these things that used to be heavily discounted, partly because the argument was, hey, how are you going to sell this thing? How do you get this to market? Right? It's like nice, but it's kind of a quasi-stranded asset. You take assets like that and now they're getting full or nearly full market prices. And sure, the gas is getting something that's like U.S. price minus a little bit, not European price, but that's still better than getting, I mean, I was chairman of a Canadian producer, we were getting like, we were losing money essentially after processing and transport on our gas. So going from that to making $3 or $4 net on gas in local currency is pretty good. So uh, local... Uh, takeaway capacity and differentials have improved dramatically. And that's really improved, I think, the, I mean, obviously it's improved the cash flow profile for Journey and their competitors in the area. Um, but it's also improved, I think, the investability because there being enough space that there's basically no discount or a very little discount on production um, with additional debottlenecking happening and very little additional production coming online um, gives it's like you kind of want multiple escape valves. So it gives you extra, it gives you breathing room. So even if things got worse in Canada, which they did temporarily, there was some pipe that was down for a little bit and some other thing, differentials blew out, but they blew out $10, not like $40 like they had historically. So it's a very big risk factor. That's something that's like worth doing a lot of work on still, given if you look at the history of the, the, the cash flows for these businesses, like COVID was not 
I mean, <laughs> COVID was bad, but the, the local price blowout in 2018 was almost as bad. And, uh, you know, there have been other sorts of issues, too, on the gas side as well as oil side. So that's been a real issue. And that being in the rearview mirror and differentials improving and debottlenecking continuing with very limited production growth is very important. And it's something that I think, again, like I just think it's been a reason for a big discount on cash flows and, you know, on reserves. And I think that's very much behind journey as well as behind their peers. And it's a reason why I think you're starting to see some of these companies re-rate. Um, trying to think, I think, I think that's probably a good place to leave off. That's kind of like a few different like problems that they had. And then I guess just like lack of available capital has been an issue. Um, you look at uh, private equity, most of the private equity deals that were done in oil and gas in Canada since 2008 have been disasters. Um, you name it, energy private equity fund or generalist private equity fund mostly has been in Canada with a money losing investment. There are a few exceptions, of course, but it's been a really tough place. And so there's very limited private capital and private capital has been where most of the capital has come into new or growing businesses in oil and gas. So that's been a problem as private equity in general has moved away from oil and gas. Um, that's like less of an issue. And then as these companies generate so much free cash flow, it's also less of an issue. But it is like, I think, a good thing to be aware of. And it's something that just matters less now um, because of the bonanza, essentially, of cash flow and free cash flow in the business, as well as kind of this reorientation of investor expectations to shareholder returns, debt pay down, buybacks, dividends, et cetera. Um, and away from the need to grow 50 or 100 or something percent a year. Josh, on this topic of deep bottlenecking, apart from just looking at, you know, the uh, kind of the spreads on Bloomberg, what are some of the, you know, either pipelines or projects or, or key issues we should be watching to monitor this issue? Uh, so there's been like a lot of noise on a bunch of them. So there was a uh, debate around line three and debate around line five. These are pipes that bring oil from Western Canada to Ironically, one of them goes through, it's through Michigan and then ends up back in Ontario at Ontario oil refiners. And Michigan's governor was trying to get it shut down, I guess, as like a re-election sort of thing. Um, it was going to ironically have disastrous effects on the people of Michigan. So it would have been similar to kind of what you're seeing in Europe with these sort of like Germany turns off nuclear power plants and then almost immediately Berlin is in blackouts. Um, so it would have been kind of an almost immediate cause and effect sort of thing. Uh, fortunately, uh, you know, while there is geopolitical risk, there is also rule of law. And that attempt was prevented, but it got like a lot of headlines and was a big concern. So anything on line three or line five, these two big uh, pipelines that currently bring oil from Canada uh, either to the U.S. or <laughs> back to Canada, um, would matter a lot. Then there's a Trans Mountain uh, pipeline, um, which uh, they, they did, did an expansion. And I don't actually remember if it's online or not, um, but the original one is on, and that's one that got disrupted for a little bit. And there's been a ton of um, debate and you know people blocking bulldozers and other stuff like that. And so... Um, you know, I think really for on the oil side, those are probably the three ones to track most closely. And then secondarily, uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline, there's a lot of drama around that too. And that's in the U.S. and it's bringing mostly North Dakota Bakken oil from North Dakota uh, down southeast. The issue is, um, you know, towards the, towards the Gulf Coast, um, the issue there is that if that were to get turned off, um, or to the expansion, I think is like legally problematic and federal courts have gone back and forth on it. If that were to be off for a sustained period, that could back up other egress points for Canadian oil and, uh, you know, could take away one of the escape valves and probably uh, expand differentials and lower the local realized price by at least a few dollars, maybe five to $10. So those are different things that I track. Uh, but again, like, Generally, those things are going pretty well, and there's enough of them going on at once that, as well as just a limited enough amount of production growth, that things actually look pretty good, and they just get better over time as additional expansions happen. And um, I think as just 
everyone breathes a sigh of relief and then tries to plan to not overfill the pipes again. Got it. So the direction I'd like to go is, you know, you've, you've painted a, a great picture and a great description of kind of the backdrop here. Um, there's a lot of cheap Canadian names, but, you know, you, you've chosen to focus on this one. And so really, what is the key? What was the tiebreaker? Um, you know, was, was it the power? Uh, is it something about the management team? that sort of thing. And based on your answer, I'd kind of like to steer the direction into, into kind of, you know, the, really what the key differentiator is with the name. So, so I don't think it's just one thing. And, and I know that's kind of a cop out, but, you know, like you said, there are multiple really cheap Canadian oil and gas stocks and there are very cheap U.S. oil and gas stocks and services are starting to look more interesting and various other businesses are looking more interesting. And so I think it's just this like mosaic of different factors that compounded, like there are certain things that just get way more interesting. And uh, I think there was also just certain things about this that were likely to get better recognized in the market, as well as to appreciate more rapidly um, in from a liquidation value perspective or a public market value perspective or whatever than other things. So yeah, I think like the power gen, especially after the Texas winter storm and then after what's happening in Europe, I think people looked at, we did an internal thing, we didn't publish it, but we looked at the Alberta power market and got super excited last year. And that was actually um, bought a ton more journey um, on the back of that as well as some other stuff. So that was something that uh, got really interesting. Um, but that wasn't it, right? So it's like that. It's the management background where the CEO, you know, he's not the most gregarious guy, really smart, really nice, really like anyone that meets him and spends time with, time with him likes him, but he's not the person that you'd think would, he wouldn't be the CEO that would get picked at like a hundred billion dollar company where he has to be on TV all the time or whatever. It's just not him. He's an engineer. Um, and a, a deal guy, but like a, you know, hundred barrel a day or a thousand barrel a day deal guy. Um, but his background is phenomenal. Like he bought New Vista, their core Monty properties, everything outside of the Pipestone asset. So basically um, some of the early most successful Montney, which is the equivalent of the Canadian equivalent of the Marcellus, um, some of the most successful best Montney land he bought for the company he was CEO at prior to journey. Um, before that, he was a senior exec at Bonavista, where um, you know he was there over a ten bagger or so, um, and as like a senior deal guy, really just kind of like leading the charge there in value creation. So it's kind of, but like any one of those things, so you can find companies that have kind of great hidden assets. You can find companies with great management. You can find companies that like really big discount, really big discounts to intrinsic value and cash flow and free cash flow. But like finding all of that together is what made it so compelling and it's frankly pretty rare and uh you know one thing uh <laughs> there were a few comments on the announcement that uh, of, of this space that i think are noteworthy and like I, I think i think to for me to like really publicly talk about an investment and be excited about it it has to have a ton of upside because otherwise there's a trap that you can get into where you talk about something and it goes up a little bit and then okay so it's revalued and now it's not interesting um, and this was something where there were enough different value levers and it was so deeply undervalued that when I got to a very full position, it made sense to talk about it and to have an understanding that when people are impatient because they've heard me talk about this very, very briefly on TV a couple of times or whatever, it's still interesting. And it's like maybe still my biggest investment and maybe still my best idea. So, um, yeah, I, I, I looked for that, too. And obviously, like your best idea if it's going to be rested here for a while, regardless of it going up or down a decent amount, you have to have a high degree of conviction. So I guess I kind of punted and talked a lot in response to that kind of short question. But I think it's a it's a good question, but it's too complicated to narrow. It's totally fair. I appreciate the answer. So if I gave you the following pushback, uh, tell me how you would respond. So, you know, you've laid out uh, all the reasons why there's a uh, you know, presumably a really large discount to fair value. Um, 
it's generally consensus thinking right now. Now you can tell me if you agree or disagree with this, um, that to kind of close these gaps versus fair value, you've got to be aggressively returning capital. Um, it sounds like maybe 22 isn't the year for this company just because, you know, they've got their CapEx is stepping up a bit and there's still some debt to pay down. Um, walk me through your logic there on just kind of the immediacy of the idea. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. And I think there's different ways to return capital and different kind of asset bases that should be managed in different ways. And so I think with a mature asset base that's well capitalized, um, that doesn't have a lot of cash flow improvement potential, um, that it makes a lot of sense to turn it into kind of an income stream and, and uh, buyback return stream. Um, I think with Journey, the things that they're doing, it's like they have a really beat up apartment building that needs like paint and plumbing repair and, you know, redone kitchens. And on doing that, their rent potential is so much higher that, yeah, like the, the, the going thing that people want might be stuff that's just rented out with like minimal reinvestment, but they kind of, it's they're leaving money on the table if they don't do those sorts of improvements. And so I think for them, there's kind of this immediacy of reinvestment after multiple years. Uh, I think their asset base is much more undercapitalized than many of their peers. And then they are paying off their debt. And so there's different ways to get paid back as a shareholder. And one way to get paid back is for your risk of handing over the keys to go down a lot. And so if you have a very undervalued asset and you, it's very undervalued because there's overwhelming debt and there's a big risk that you might lose it, the, the valuation on that is going to, the discount is going to be overwhelming. And so as you go from way overvalued or sorry, way uh, over levered to under levered to no debt, your discount, like just the appropriate market discount changes a lot for the valuation of your business. So I don't think they needed to pay off, uh, to, sorry, to buy back stock. I mean, obviously it would have been very accretive if they had done that. I don't think they've needed to pay a dividend, uh, partly because they've just dramatically reduced the risk aspect of owning their stock. Um, going forward, I would expect that as they get to full debt pay down or you know most of their debt paid off, that they would shift over to a return of capital model and they have historically actually repurchased a large amount of their stock. They bought back 25% of their stock. I think it was in 2017. I don't remember exactly when, but there was a, a foreign owner of uh, almost a majority of the company and uh, there was some control risk there. So they bought back a bunch of stock. So I think they've already shown uh, <laughs> a willingness to go way more aggressive on buybacks than many of their peers or many companies ever do. Um, and I think they also the management at their prior roles have been large dividend payers historically. So I think there's just kind of a comfort that they're very likely to do that um, and that de-risking the business first uh, adds more value than rushing to return capital uh, at a time where there's still a lot of risk. And again, it's like one of those things where starting at a low enough valuation really helps with that, where um, there's just less pressure to pay a dividend or buy back stock if you're so radically undervalued for specific reasons and then you're able to um, mitigate some of those reasons or some of those uh, concerns. I have a couple of more questions, but I also, I see a lot of a lot of really smart folks out here in the crowd. So please request to speak uh, if you have questions. So Josh, could you just uh, help everybody stand, uh, understand the Canadian regulatory risk. I mean, once again, it's just a lot of folks are kind of zeroed in on the, you know, on regulatory risk in the U.S. But could you just give the lay of the land in, in Canada and, you know, what what you'd either be really excited to see from a headline perspective or, you know, what what theory kind of keeps you up at night? Sure. So uh, there <laughs> there's plenty of risks most of which journey avoids by the jurisdiction it operates in, as well as um, the types of assets that it operates. So um, I think the biggest single risk journey has, and this is something that I think people way overemphasize in downturns and maybe underemphasize at 
the peaks of bull markets. And it's one of the ways that Journey had substantially more leverage um, in the downturn and is able to re-rate as much as it has with way more upside, I think, um, here, which is uh, asset retirement obligations. And so the way that it's worked in Canada is basically you've gone from a almost like fully laissez-faire approach um, which caused lots of issues and there ended up being a lot of wells that needed to be abandoned by the state or province. And so they set up an orphan well fund. And then there have been various kind of legal uh, advances where, and frankly, like the U.S. probably needs some of this. I mean, I'm very libertarian, but like this aspect of like people just leaving liabilities behind for the public or for local people to have to deal with is, is a problem, right? If you cause a thing, you should be responsible to fix the thing, uh, not pawn it off on on your neighbors or on the state. So they have a lot of liabilities because they have a lot of producing wells and uh, having wells that produce, let's say, five or 10 or 20 barrels a day that are going to produce for a very long time, but eventually have to get um, shut in and remediated. And you know the, the wells will need to get um, plugged and abandoned and then the land around them will need to get remedi- remediated. That's a very high expense, but it's also not something that needs to get done for, in Journey's case, anywhere from five to 30 plus years, uh, depending on the exact field. And so um, that's something where when prices are low, it looks like that's going to have to happen really soon. And when prices are higher, it looks like it has to happen way further off in the distance. It dramatically affects the value of the reserves, because again, it either really accelerates um, when you have to get rid of the well and, and cuts off the right tail of the reserves, or it extends that right tail of reserves and increases both the quantity and value of the reserves substantially. So a company with a lot of asset retirement obligations of this type, where it's reflective of lots of wells and lots of oil on the ground, and ultimately just having to shut in and abandon and clean up those wells, um, offers a sort of significant commodity price leverage and a sort of significant upside to um, you know, uh, Im- improved operating environments and improved cash flow. So, so that's a very big risk, though, because um, there were a lot of advances in the regulation and the enforcement of liability and stuff around that. So what's happened is that um, Alberta set up a area-based closure program and then um, enforced it both with a carrot and a stick that gave out a lot of money, including the journey to go um, remediate some of the worst liabilities. And then companies like journey spend a certain amount of money every year. They designate an area and they remediate it. And so what that does is it turns the liability, which historically there was a lot of concern around into essentially a slowly amortizing large amount of debt. And so Journey has, I think, in their last report, it was something like 200 million of asset retirement obligations, and they were obligated to spend, I think it was like three and a half million dollars last year um, on, and, and they, they spent more than that, and some of that was from the province and, and you know, was, was given to them on a one-time basis to do, um, but there was a lot of risk before this program uh, and based on some of the legal decisions that were made and, and so on, and once this got in place... Um, it's something that I think I think there's a decent chance that Oklahoma and Texas and New Mexico and so on will impose. Actually, New Mexico might have something like this already. Will impose things like this because abandoned wells are problems. There's been some headlines about some stuff in West Texas with a big water well with like poisonous stuff in the water. These are real issues. Um, for Journey, it's an issue, but it's also something that's been legislated around, regulated, enforced. And, um, you know, there's been this carrot and stick thing. So it's actually, I think, given a lot of clarity and, and you know, for that jurisdiction and for their asset type, I think it's by far the biggest risk as well as kind of the biggest clarity over the last, let's say, three years for, for them and for their sort of asset. Very helpful. We have a question from fellow Pittsburgher, Deep Marcellus. Hey, Josh, uh, thanks for taking the time out tonight uh, to discuss this. You know, I, I know we've talked about this ourselves uh, in DMs, but curious, you know, I think, you know, the power gem side is clearly a, a differentiator here and something that maybe many people who invest in oil and gas would have a difficult time sort of uh, valuing in, in the big picture here. I know that Alex, uh, the CEO from Journey, did a space the other day and he spoke about how much, uh, you know, how much 
money they, they essentially gain for every you know MCF that goes through the power gen side. I don't know if you want to speak to that. Uh, you know how much upside convexity they would have to to their gas margins if they can grow out the uh, the power gen. And I don't know if you have any ideas or have spoken to, to Alex to get an idea of how much they want to uh, expand that side of the business moving forward. So, so I, I, kn- I know this side of the business really well and actually bugged Journey to not, they had a contract to sell it um, last year, uh, early in the year. And uh, I can't say that they listened to me, but I definitely bugged them to not sell it. Um, I, I had uh, independent engineers I worked with uh, on potentially uh, trying to buy it uh, in a topping bid versus the bid that was uh, that was going to that they were going to accept. Um, so I, I I don't think so. I, I did like a a lot of work on this, and and that's not something like I often look at assets of companies that I own or that I follow closely. And there are various capital providers and partners who are always interested. For whatever reason, there's oh, there always seems to be a lot more capital available on the at least there has been over the last number of years on the private side of the oil and gas market, especially for infrastructure. Um, so it's something I looked at and thought it was interesting, and modeled extensively and have a variant view versus the company. This is worth materially more than they represent, and um, it's possible that they don't want to talk it up as much because they had a contract to sell it for like 15 million bucks. And again, this was at a very depressed time and this was a, a mechanism for buying back debt at 50 cents on the dollar. So like that's very accretive and there, there are things you do where you might sell an asset for like 60% of its value at the time in order to buy back debt at a 50% discount, right? Like there's some accretion and you, you preserve the rest of your business and so on. Um, but you know, even at that time, it was obvious to us that it met a very high return hurdle to potentially buy that asset for a material premium to what they were going to sell it for. Um, so the way that they were talking about it, uh, so so people understand, is they were talking about it as essentially an uplift. And and people that do like Bitcoin mining with natural gas will talk about this too, where you know they um, focus on the the marginal cost and the marginal revenue. And so you take $3 gas or $4 gas. And if you mine Bitcoin with it, supposedly you get like 50 or 80 or something dollars in MCF for your gas instead of the three or $4. Uh, Alex was talking about it like that, where he saw it as, uh, you know, turning $3 gas into $12. And again, I, I think, I think it's a little bit understating it. So it sounds good. Right. And it's very important um, in terms of liabilities, because when you plug in, a natural gas power gen and you have escalating power costs over time, you change the liability profile of the asset that you're supporting the power gen with. Um, and so instead of having uh, a forward curve, which falls to some extent for natural gas and is not very price supportive, if you use the power curve, which is escalating um, and very strong for a number of years, uh, you end up having a liability life that goes way further out uh, for a uh, gas field. I know it sounds kind of funny, but you end up like dramatically improving the reserve value of your gas while also improving your cash flow. So, so there's kind of like a two or three like multiple uh, activity on putting in that sort of power gen on your own gas production. Um, but I think it's even better than that because of the tax pools they have, because of some of the other uh, aspects of managing gas assets for a while of having been a very active acquirer and divester of oil and gas, particularly gas assets in central Alberta, I think they have like a pretty significant advantage in being able to go ramp this up pretty rapidly. The way they represented it was they spent X amount of money. They would have a two year, I think they spent like 10 million or something on the project. They expected a two year payout on a 20 year asset. So if they can go do that, and they're representing now that they can self-finance it, and we'll see. But if they can go uh, essentially do cashback financing with a bank or whatever um, just on that power gen and then build out more power gen because the province is so undersupplied and because the regulatory environment is so onerous for building more of these things, um, I mean, you could very quickly have a business on the power gen side that's five times or so what it is right now. And, and it's like, it sounds like a lot of growth, but really it's just going from one power gen that's at 60% of capacity to 
five at a hundred percent and you know one to five is a big move but it's also <laughs> you know just like one at a time if you did two a year you know it would not be very long to be able to have that scale so so i guess i i'm saying i think about it a little bit differently but it is helpful and i think it was a great question in terms of thinking about what the unit economic uplift is um i, I guess i just think that ends up undercounting the strategic value and then there's a number of transactions historically that have supported uh, pretty high valuations for integrated gas power gen assets, even in Western Canada. Josh, we have a follow-up on that topic uh, from our favorite Canadian, KNL, via direct message. And his question is, you know, small cap companies, it's, it can sometimes get tricky when the story is a little more complicated. Is there a risk here that this company gets valued like an ENP and you're essentially losing that valuation premium that, that it should have for its power gen. And, and then based on the, you know, the follow-up to that question is, would you take 30 or $40 million for that asset now, as opposed to call it 15? Uh, <laughs> well, I can't negotiate for the company. So if you want to go buy it for 30 or $40 million, maybe if you were chairman, it. Josh, tell me what you would uh, do. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think, I think it's complicated. Cause I think it's just a question of like what you have to sell. Um, if you can keep the people and keep your ability to go do the next thing, um, and then get a show the Alberta regulators that you actually like made money from setting it up and then reselling it and that you're recycling the capital and reinvesting. I mean, maybe there's some strategic value in doing that, right? Because maybe it like makes things easier to go do more stuff. Um, but from an intrinsic value perspective, I mean, if you if you're generating a lot of free cash flow, it takes a lot of pressure off of divesting assets. And so, yeah, if they traded at a valuation. Um, that was really unattractive. Uh, I think it's something that they would look at probably to sell an asset like that in order to repurchase um, shares or whatever. But like with their current free cash flow setup, I don't think they really have a, a need for that. And then in terms of trading in line with their peers, I mean, it's one of those things where a, a lot of the valuation and a lot of the kind of uh, views on these companies are unfortunately subjective. And I say that unfortunately because, you know, I guess it's good because it makes it possible to find things that are as undervalued as, as this uh, was at the outset and still is pretty undervalued. Um, and uh, it's also unfortunate because I think it causes a lot of misconceptions around what things are worth and not worth and so on. And so um, in a rapidly um, escalating, you know, cost inflation environment for services, having a business that doesn't require a lot of reinvestment um, increases the value of those assets substantially versus assets that require a lot of reinvestment, for example. Um, so where, like, where should Journey's assets and where should Journey as a business purely on the EMP side trade? Um, you know, it's a good question, but I would argue that probably it should trade, even if it didn't have the power gen and didn't have this huge net, uh, net operating loss tax shield that may also, you know, if you use this kind of high-end 20% of NOL value, I mean, that basically gets you to their market cap or higher. Um, so, or I guess to their market cap. So I, I don't know. I mean, I think maybe you get to a 30 or something percent uplift to their current stock price without those assets. So um, if, if it traded roughly in line with the small cap uh, peer set. Got it. So second question, and apologize if I uh, butcher the pronunciation, but, uh, you know, management doesn't really lay out the economics in their presentation of, of DuVernay. And the question is, you know, what are they? What do you know about that play? And should they even be there? Uh, so I know too much about the play. Uh, they're basically not there that much anymore. They had a, a big land play there. They chose the wrong operating partner. The operating partner wasted a lot of money and drilled wells that were excellent, but were so expensive that um, they weren't able to continue their program. Competitors in both directions have drilled, both to the north and to the south, have drilled phenomenal wells, have stayed active, and that play is very valuable. Um, unfortunately, you know, this is like no one's perfect. Everything has hair and the Duvernay was a very big disappointment. Um, and, you know, there was a period of time where that asset was worth a lot, uh, where those leases were worth a lot. Um, 
and that period has mostly passed and much of that land uh, has either already expired or is likely to expire soon. So um, not something I'd really attribute much value to at all. Um, they do have some production there, which is worth something. And then they have some land that's held by production, which is like a long-term option on whomever ends up with this land and ends up developing it. But yeah, I attribute basically no value to the land aspect of that. So Josh, if we look out, let's say a year or two, nothing changes in the current oil and gas pricing environment. Nothing material changes in terms of kind of basis or differentials. Lay out your best case for this stock and your worst case for the stock. Uh, so, so again, nothing changes with the commodity price or the differentials. Right, exactly. So, uh, I mean, obviously that will change the price a lot, right? But I just, I kind of want to walk through what's the best case, assuming prices just are what they are now, and what's the worst case, you know, what, what kind of things could go wrong and you, and you kind of don't realize, um, you know, you know, the opportunity. Yeah, you know, this is, a, this is a really good question because I think because of the historic price volatility and frankly current price volatility as well as concerns around the economy and stuff, I think often it's easy to just think about the commodity price risk and then, you know, take a lot of other things, uh, kind of assume them to be kind of middle of the road. Um, so the best case is journeys right now, recapitalizing assets that are real fixer uppers that need a lot of TLC. And so the upside case is that when that care is given, there are phenomenal returns. And we saw this in the Clearwater in Canada. We've seen this in several other places um, with newer technology, with newer approaches. You know, there's like less easy to access resource on the ground now than there was last year or than the year before, et cetera. Right. Like this, the, the nature of natural resources is you get the best stuff and easiest stuff first. And then the next stuff that you get, you have to use better technology and better recovery techniques. So Journey having undercapitalized their assets for a while, the upside case is that they massively outperform. Like I look at their capital program and it's possible, and I'm not expecting this, but you know, we're talking about best case, it's possible that they exit 2022 at like 12 or 13,000 barrels a day. And you know, it would be like a lot of gas that they would have added and not as much oil. So maybe it would shift their gas mix up a little bit. But, um, you know, they're drilling in some areas that have historically been very prolific. And there is a good right tail case for enormous production growth. Um, and some of their competitors have capitalized similar assets and had that sort of success. So I don't know how to probability weight it, but that would be an upside case. Another similar upside case would be the ability to reinvest increasing amounts of money in the power generation business. And I think as they get to scale there, um, when they have, you know, 30 megawatts of power gen instead of four and a half megawatts or, you know, as they expand this thing, it's going to be six, I think, by the end of this year, or something like that. Um, as, as they expand that, they're, they're going to start, I think, to get valued more for that part of the business. At least that part should start to get uh, low to inline multiple. If they can expand it fast um, and get stuff online and have it working, again, right tail scenario, maybe they expand to seven or 10 over a three-year period. So 18 months in, they're at five or six. It's going really well. They're able to expand more. And again, we're not assuming any change in commodities or strip or whatever, but just the strip for PowerGen in Alberta. Um, I mean, they would be making considerably more money under both a more rapid and successful PowerGen situation, as well as a more rapid or successful uh, production situation. Um, similar thing on the downside. So if they're not able to grow their PowerGen, if they hit a bunch of regulatory issues and they're just like where they are now, on PowerGen, that would be a real problem for them. And, you know, frankly, I don't think there's any valuation for it in the stock, but, you know, it would be really unfortunate if they're not able to cycle capital how they're expecting and hoping to into a higher multiple business. So that would be a problem and not something that I'm expecting. But again, also, I don't think it's really valued in. Um, and then when I look at their capital program, again, the same, the same way that they could end up exiting at like 12,000 barrels a day, um, they could end up exiting at, if there are significant disappointments at, let's say, 
8,500 or 8,600. I mean, it's kind of funny because like that's around where their guidance is. I think they're guiding to exiting at 9,000. Um, but, you know, I mean, these wells could be 50 barrel a day wells instead of a thousand barrel a day wells with kind of a P50 of, I don't know, 300 or 400 barrels a day. So they could have disappointment there. They could also have some other sort of environmental issue. They have, um, it looks like there's a connection issue. Um, are you able to hear me? Um, so it, it looks like, uh, I mean, they, they could have some sort of uh, spill or other sort of liability. They do have insurance for that, and it is onshore, so these things tend to not be too egregiously expensive, but they could be forced to have some production offline for some amount of time if they were to have a spill. Um, and you know, they could be potentially out of pocket two or $3 million before insurance would kick in. So those are kind of some of the negative cases operationally. Um, again, like, Hey, uh, sorry about that. Um, they, uh, can you hear me okay? Okay, I think I think uh, you can. I think I think Tim might have gotten disconnected briefly. Um, so anyway, so we walked through the downside case of potential operational issues and lower production and not many more, if any, power gen brought on as a kind of big left tail, and then big right tail would be way more production if one or two or more of these wells end up way bigger. Um, you know, and again, like there are wells in these fields that have been way bigger, so it is possible. Um, but it's just not something that I'm counting on. And then, um, similar for the power gen, like I think a reasonable case is, Oh, that was really frustrating. So I, I was cut off for almost two minutes. So, um, I was literally cut off from when you were like, after you were discussing, Basically, in the middle of your bull case, I, I cut off. But you just you tell me where the space ended and, and pick it up from there. Um, sure. Uh, so uh, it was towards the end of the bear case. So why don't I just do the the bull case and bear case really fast? I kind of rambled on both and then noticed that you were gone for the other one. Um, and I guess repeating it a little bit is fine because it'll give people a chance to, to cycle in. Is that OK? Yeah, yeah, that that's perfect. Okay, cool. Okay, and hopefully we won't get uh, disconnected. Um, so uh, the the right tail operationally is um, a bunch of power gen gets turned on, gets approved, works, um, and that's you know a huge amount of free cash flow, huge amount of extra cash flow, a uh, huge amount of uh, residual value that's work you know with projects that should be on for twenty plus years. Um, and then from a production perspective, there is upside. And again, I'm not counting on this, but the wells that they're drilling and the areas that they're drilling in some cases have drastically exceeded their expectations. So in areas where you might get 200, you know, plus or minus 50 barrels a day, there is a chance that you get 500 or 700 barrel a day wells, especially with improvements in technology. And so there is a shot at substantially more, um, there was a shot at substantially more production, which would mean a bunch more cash flow and reserves and just like a much faster um, pace of growth and or, you know, huge return of capital, you know, that that sort of growth could get them much closer to, you know, less than two times free cash flow in 2023. And then um, similar on the power gen and then on um, on the bear side, uh, just like these wells could in theory, they're very likely to be around, let's say 200 barrels a day. Um, just like they could be 500 barrels a day, they could be 50. And so you could end up with production below their guidance, which could not be so great for 2023. And then similarly on the power gen side, they could get no more approvals or have issues or whatever. And then there's also a risk of spills, just like any industrial operation, if you mess up. There are costs and consequences. It's onshore. It's Alberta. It's well understood, mostly, and well insured. But you know, this could cost them some money, could cut off some production, and could take some time to to bring back on. So those are kind of the two uh, bookends, purely from an operational perspective. Okay, thanks so much. So one question that I meant to ask but but forgot earlier. Uh, it's probably a little bit out of place, but this these seven hundred million dollars of tax pools NOLs, um, you know, 
how do you think about those? Is it, is it really just about more cash flow generation for this company or does it make the company a target? I've heard that thrown around as potential uh, reason for M&A in the Canadian space. And I'd just love to hear your thought on, you know, whether that's realistic or not. Yeah. So I, I've stopped underwriting things to buyouts because um, transactions in the space uh, predominantly have been um, uh, merger of equals at uh, or, or, you know, mergers or whatever with very little, if any, premium. So um, <laughs> when someone says, oh, this thing is a buyout candidate, I think they're just identifying themselves as not having tracked the last three years of transactions, unfortunately. Um, so I don't think that's like a good thing necessarily. Um, so but specific to these uh, NOLs, um, you know, I think over time, we're going to get back to premium transactions. And over time, um, the leverage effect of the asset retirement obligations will have played out where Journey will have much more production reserves that better reflect the actual amount of oil in place and the long life nature of their assets. And I think, I think it may take a while before the asset market warms up to assets of the sort that Journey has. So it's not really a play on, hey, they get bought out anytime soon. It's more a play on as commodity prices rise, uh, the value of having your cash flow shielded, um, especially in an environment where there's so much value placed on return of capital, um, you know, returning capital is not so great if you have to pay 25% or 30% of your cash flow in tax before you get to go return it. Um, it just, it really cuts into returns. It's similar to why for a while until some changes in U.S. tax law, uh, buybacks, and other sorts of things were maybe more favored than dividends. You know, if you have to pay a, a high income tax on a dividend, it's a lot less exciting. You know, it's fine because it's money in the bank, but then it's not actually everything that shows up as money in the bank that you get to keep. So, um, you know, taxes change attractiveness of things and having a lot of tax shield really, I think, improves the long-term value of your cash flow stream. I'm going to make one more call out for questions from the crowd. But while I'm doing that, Josh, is there anything that we haven't discussed uh, yet that, that, that you think is, is uh, you know, needed to be discussed? Um, well, I, I briefly touched on the management track record. I think, I think this matters. Um, I think people matter a lot and it's something that I downplayed for a while in investments and I think have gotten to appreciate more over time. And I think one of the things that I've learned is that people are, are normally not as good when everyone loves someone, they're normally not as good as everyone's saying and thinking. And when everyone hates someone, they're normally not as bad as everyone's thinking you're saying. And there are exceptions, but generally people kind of perform within bounds and um, you know, uh, they, they'll act, in in patterns but they're they're generally not like quite as phenomenal so like when companies have a huge management premium often it gets hard for me to invest even acknowledging that management ma matters because you know there is a risk that they end up not quite meeting people's expectations um but coming into a situation where there's discount associated with the assets and like no recognition of what on investigation is a remarkable track record um, is exciting because there is the shot at management actually getting credit for that over time, either through people better studying their past and or through them continuing to deliver value over time. So, um, you know, I think I think that matters a lot here. And I think it matters that they're still um, at quite a large discount to companies in their space that have a management premium um, while having a record that is competitive with some of the best teams in the space. Couldn't agree with you more on that point. We get a little too, a little too excited at the, at the edges. Um, but it's fun if you can get in at a discount, right? It's great to invest with great people because <laughs> like, you know, it sounds funny because it's like, oh, well, management matters. It matters, but it's better there, it's even better if you can get it at a, you know, 30% or 50% or whatever discount to intrinsic and discount to comps and with like some extra free stuff. I mean, that's even better than having to pay a premium uh, for, for the same sort of setup.
for sure. Well, listen, Josh, I think, um, you know, you've laid out a really compelling case. Uh, it, it's really interesting, the differentiation within this name. And, and I liked, you know, when I asked the question about, you know, what's the one tiebreaker and your answer was, well, really it's, you know, it, it's holistic. There's three or four different cases that kind of put me over the edge on this stock. And I think that's a really good way to frame it. Uh, you know, you check a lot of different boxes here. And so this has been really helpful. I think that's a, a good place to leave it. Uh, obviously, if anybody doesn't already follow Josh here and invests in energy or commodities, you're crazy. So go ahead and do that. And uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the space. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And, and thanks for uh, hopping back on after that disconnection. And I appreciate you uh, having me on. I think this is a great effort. And, uh, you know, I really like this construct. It's very freeing. There's a lot of pressure to talk about a lot of different things in different formats. And it's nice to be able to spend, I think, a decent amount of time on one thing and getting to, you know, delve through it and talk about the pluses and minuses. And so this is, this is a, a fun uh, exercise to get, to get to participate in. And, you know, I'm looking forward to hearing more of these. Absolutely. I appreciate that, Josh. Have a great night, everybody. Great. Thank you, everyone. Take care.